Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Nissan. It's currently occupied territory of the Middle East Center. Where we are united because the Burmese have taken over the Middle East Center. This is, after all, St. Anthony's College. This kind of international promiscuity is our hallmark. And it's a great occasion to be welcoming you all here to be discussing a wonderful book, El Shohat, on the Arab Jew, Palestine, and other displacements. I, I hold a copy of the book myself. It's a treasure for my library. The last time that I was holding this book, it was in November of this year. And I got it inscribed by the author. Very powerful author that's able to realize his ambitions just by inscribing a book. I say this because, as you will see coming in, the book is available for sale out there. And this is your opportunity to ensure that our author signs your copy as well. Now, I say this not just because it's a wonderful opportunity, but because it is a book that, if you have not read it already, will so richly reward your reading. It's not my place to tell you how many ways this book will reward your reading. We have actually an outstanding panel of speakers to give you their views on the themes that animate on the Arab Jew, Palestine, and other displacement. It's a great pleasure for us to be welcoming back Professor Jacqueline Rose, who's Professor of Humanities, co-director of the Birkbeck Institute for the Humanities, and director of the London Critical Theory Summer School to the Middle East Center at St. Anthony's. You've given us such wonderful lectures in the past, Jacqueline. Welcome. We will then hear from Fir Cohen. Fir is a visiting scholar in contemporary literature and postdoctoral fellow in history. He's currently attached to the Avandir Institute in Jerusalem. I will then invite Moshe Bahar to speak. He is senior lecturer in Israel-Palestine studies and obtained his doctor of philosophy in Columbia, but now is teaching at the University of Manchester. And our final speaker on the panel will be Hakim Al-Rustam of University of Michigan. Hakim is Alex Manubian Professor of Modern <coughs> Armenian History and Assistant Professor of History and Anthropology at Michigan. We will then leave the final word to our author herself. Not one to be silenced, certainly not for long. But Ella Shohan give voice to her own ideas in response to those who have been reading and commenting on her work. And I will then report to you, our audience, for your questions and comments. But let the evening begin. Jacqueline, get us off to a brilliant start. Thank you so much for that introduction. I'm delighted to be back here at St. Anthony's College Middle East Center, which is such an important beacon of study in this vexed area and these complex political times and it's really wonderful that it persists with the work it does and I'm honoured to be here and I'm especially honoured to be responding to Ella Shohat given the capaciousness and the generosity and the counterintuitive move in which she shifts and contains whole worlds. I mean, she really is the emblem, to use her own phrase, of adversarial scholarship. I think she gives that its defining property. And just to say that the first time I met Ella was in 1994 at a conference that was a tribute to Edward Said, which he indeed attended. And um, I just wanted to pay tribute to his tribute to her because he was clearly not only just so full of respect, but also of immense affection and interest and attentiveness to what she had to say. And after all, 
Ella had thrown down the gauntlet in a way in response to Edward Said's Zionism from the standpoint of its victims with her path-breaking essay, Zionism from the standpoint of its Jewish victims, which I note is the opening essay in this remarkable collection. And if I say adversarial scholarship, I'm always struck by that counterintuitive move that she makes in her writing and which is really borne witness to in this book, whether it's Judeo-Arabic as link and as a form of splitting, so both moves in the same time, or the intertwining of the two 1492s, the discovery of the Americas with all that meant for the oppression, if not decimation, of the indigenous peoples and the expulsion of the Jews and the Muslims from Spain or the emptying of the Geniza of Cairo, which anticipated by half a century the displacement of its peoples, or the exclusion of Mizrahi women from Ashkenazi feminism, on which, to which I will return. And part of that, if it I'll return immediately, part of that, crucially, is the brilliant way in which, in her, seems to me both courageous but also pained intervention in this book around Mizrahi and Ashkenazi Feminism, when she created the Mizrahi Feminist Group, which was a, a, a very, very bold and I'm sure very difficult act to have initiated. And I'm very struck by the way that Ella talks about the oppression of women as bound up with more than just misogyny. So often what Ella does is put two things together that you think aren't compatible or that haven't been historically put together, like the two 1492s, but another move that she makes is to show how things are linked that you wouldn't necessarily think were compatible. So I'm very struck by a number of points in this book where she insists on the oppression of women as bound up with state institutions and power. So, for example, the Israeli military intimidating Palestinian women fighting for their rights by threatening them with the besmirching of their honour or the kidnapping of Yemeni children on the grounds that these families are bulging and therefore will not miss an additional child, which must be truly shocking, or more simply that these women are the property of the state. And we can perhaps come back to this later, but I think that twinning of the oppression of women with state institutions and power is a crucial corrective to a certain kind of feminism which sees itself entirely in terms of male power and sexuality. And I'm also very struck of the way, and this is another move that she makes, in which marginality acquires the status of truth. It's not quite the same as speaking truth to power. It's where something on the fringes, or that seems to be a subordinate or overlooked or even scotomized category of thought and political life, is raised back to the centre by her. And here I'm thinking of the Muranos, who were, after all, Derrida's ego ideal, but you got there way before him. And um, the twinned prosecution of the Jews and the Muslims, the Moranos and the Moriscos, subject of twinned prosecution in Spain. And I think what all these moves testify to is the clear political impetus of intellectual life. Ella was, in fact, way ahead in stressing the necessity of dialogic relations, gender and state, Mizrahim and Palestinians, of interlinking different forms of oppression we could say she's way ahead of the concept of intersectionality, which has become so influential in feminist thinking today. I'm also very struck by the immense complexity of what she does and the way, Ella, that you 
You don't ever indulge your own cause, if I can put it like that. You're always on the edge of what could be a pitfall of the championing of a certain position. So at the same time that you're talking about the necessity of bringing Mizdahim women to the forefront of feminist engagement, you're making the distinction between racial and national disposition as distinguishing those women. You also say, we must never forget the privilege of the Mizrahim women vis-a-vis the Palestinians, Palestinians, and you talk about Arab nationalism's collaboration with the dispossession of Arab Jews. So you never idealize any of your categories. You offer them up, you, you excavate them, and then it seems to me you decompose them whilst never diminishing the political urgency of why we need to think about them and why they're important. And there are passages in this book which I think are truly breathtaking, so I really will encourage you. I've only got 10 minutes, so I fear I've already used them up. But, um, so I, won't, I wanted to read out one of my favorite passages, but I won't do that. But there is a moment where you're talking, you have a wonderful essay here on Fanon, which is one of my favorite in the book, where you talk about how Fanon actually was abreast of the bifurcation in relationship to Israel between thinking of it as a colonial settler state and thinking of it as a national liberation movement of an oppressed minority people. And you talk about Zionism as an anomalous project. You talk about schizophrenic master narratives. You talk about the redemptive nationalist narrative vis-a-vis Europe and the anti-Semitic colonialist narrative vis-a-vis the Arabs living on the line. So it's a real bifurcation. And I have to say that the more I read this book, the more I was struck by the psychoanalytic resonance of much of what you say, which of course I'm always on the lookout for. It's my pathology, okay. But I really don't think I'm making this up. When you say, for example, in the essay on Fanon, I ultimately view my task as one of placing Zionism on the couch. Now, I would never dare say that. You know, I mean, I've been told that's what I've done, but I would never put it there on the page. So I thought, whoa, this is incredible. And you talk about splitting schizophrenia, sorry, listening to them, splitting schizophrenia, ambiguity, overdetermination, denegation, transgenerational legacy, people with no chance to fully digest the traumas of their own displacement. And at moments, and this would be a question I want to end my remarks with, at moments I just wondered how far this can go and whether it needs to be pushed a little bit further. So, for example, there's a strand running through this book, if I read it correctly, on mobility, multiplicity, multiculturalism, and keyword for you, relationality. Okay. And in the wonderful essay on taboo voices and diaspora in, in, your, in your previous book, you actually have a section called Towards a Relational Approach to Identity. And it seems to me that relationality is being proffered as a type of solution to exclusionary nationalism. And I'm not... I mean, I have... This will be a conversation we could perhaps have. I have reservations about the term relationality in psychoanalysis itself, which, of course, comes from the Greenberg and Mitchell School of Object Relations Psychoanalysis, has a very distinguished pedigree. But I feel, as well, with that school of psychoanalytic thinking, that something about the disturbance of what's being talked about is being sublated too quickly by the category of relationality. So I'm just never sure, and I felt this when I was reading you, whether these terms that we all want to celebrate are up to the job, basically, whether they're up 
to the pathologies of national entrenchment and the fantasies of belonging and the singular identity which you deconstruct mm -hmm. so brilliantly. Mm -hmm. um, so I just wanted to say, to take for example the term displacement. Now it just so happens that in a book I wrote, The Last Resistance, one of the essays is called Displacement in Zion. And because displacement is such an important category for thinking about what's happened in the Middle East, I found myself, not for the first time, going back to Freud and asking, what does this mean? And on the one hand, indeed, displacement in Freud's early thinking means mobility of thought, things moving around the pathways and vicissitudes and the internal trajectories of the mind. But as Freud's work moves on, displacement comes to mean something more like moving from one place to the other and entrapping your history in the second place, in a form of denegation of the first. That's it. It comes much more bound up with amnesia. And when I was pursuing this, I was very struck by the story in the early 90s, early 2000s actually, of a Croatian Catholic woman who had converted on a yacht to Judaism, moved to Israel, believed that she had a historic right to the land because she was now Jewish, and saw in the Arabs the people she saw as her Muslim persecutors in Croatia and said, we will not make that mistake again. And I just felt that was so eloquent of the impasses of identity and the way that you can move from place A to place B and not just take your psychic and political baggage with you, but entrench it, and I was saying pervert it, into a new form of intransigence. So I have other examples. There's another one that I found very, very striking is the incredible Toledo reunion, which you also talked about at the Kreisky Forum, where we've had the great pleasure of working together in Vienna, the Bruno Kreisky Forum. And Elias Samba was addressing the Arab Jews, and he talked of, and you quote this, the fear that in the bottom of your hearts, you are aware of the harm that has been done to you by the creation of the state of Israel. You probably tell yourselves, after everything we have done to the Palestinians, how can we believe them when they say they want to live in harmony? Now, what really struck me about that was the fear that, mm -hmm. in the bottom of your hearts, you are aware of the harm done to you by the creation of the state of Israel, which is to say that the harm cannot be spoken, it cannot be acknowledged, and it forms a kind of blockage inside the system. So I thought that was eloquent and moving. And you also talk of a rolling series of hateful transferences among the oppressed. Mm -hmm. And you're talking there in a completely different context of the racist Jew and the progressive whitening of the Jew. And then finally, you talk about the conflict in the Iraqi community. Actually, you say it's in the community, it's in the family, and it can be inside a single individual. And you talk of the bitter Iraqi Jews betrayed by Israel and its promise, the Iraqi communists relieved in Israel to live openly as communists, and the Iraqi Jews celebrating the return to the land but feeling entrapped by the identity which they are then denied as, as Arab Jews once they get there. So I feel sometimes your work presents a challenge to the terms through which you want to resolve the awfulness of what you so brilliantly and graphically present us with. Thank you, Ella. I learn from you every time. As always, it's a difficult act to follow. As is known by now, the 1988 publication of Ella Shopat's Faladimus, Israel of Zionism from the standpoint of the Jewish victims, is by far one of the most important landmarks in the critique of Zionism, both in the US and in Israel. 
So while the term Arab Jews was used here and there before, Shochat's powerful use of the term opened up new, rarely explored avenues for reflection on Arab Jewish relations with Palestine. One of Shochat's important contributions to this body of work was to collapse the disciplinary boundary that separated the Palestinian conceived of an external foreign policy problem and the Arab Jewish citizens of Israel, conceived as a domestic problem, and in this way extolled the systemic orientalist bias as well as proposed a horizon of solidarity between Arab Jews and Palestinians. Another, no less important contribution was to break up the Iron Pole of Zionism on Jewish history, perceived as a history of catastrophes ending up in their in redemption in the form of Jewish sovereignty, and offer instead multiple modes of multicultural Jewish existence that sees in the East especially a home rather than an exilic placeholder. While acknowledging the importance of the Arab Jew to the field of postponement of thought, and more than that, I would like, however, to propose today a critical assessment of the term in the hopes of engaging in a fruitful conversation over its limits and the implications for understanding both the present and the past. Since the term Arab Jew has gained some popularity with scholars in Israel and the US, my comments today are not limited only to Shochat's understanding, but the way it came to be understood over time. And this is very important because it had a life of its own, and I think that it's important to understand how it is used today. First, let me note that the term Arab Jew emerged in the early 1990s on the background of two shifts, one disciplinary, the other historical. The first concerns, of course, the shift from Marxist analysis of social relations grounded in the political economy and the category of class to broadly defined post-colonial studies. At his heart lies the category of identity, ethnicity, and race. The shift continues, although not seamlessly, the break in the 1960s coming about with the new left and the advent of post-structuralist theory. The second shift, whose mark is usually 1989, concerns the official end of any alternative to capitalism and the ensuing spread of neoliberal capital all over the world. While the first shift is widely acknowledged, the second one is rarely so. And I would like to open my remarks today by saying that any political understanding of the Arab Jew should begin with the fact of global capitalism becoming the de facto universal mode of life that the very thought of the Arab Jew presupposes as its unquestioned ground and condition of possibility. This opening gambit will surely come as a surprise and prompt the question how indeed one gets from the Arab Jews, whose historical locus is precisely pre-capitalist society, to what is called late capitalism or neoliberalism. To answer the question and proceed to the actual claim, we would need to remember that the Arab Jew, like any other identity, was invented not out so much of an historical desire to understand the past, but out of the exigencies of the present, i.e. the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Whatever historical validity it definitely has, is less relevant in the manner it was catapulted to the present. It is used not so much as an analytical term device, but as a mnemonic one. That is to say, to remind us that at one point in time, the Jew and the Arab were not split into two nations and potentially two territories, but cohabited the same cultural linguistic region into which the Jews, as the argument goes, were mostly well integrated. I will return to this problematic psychic conception of recollection and avowal <coughs> later on, but first let me mention that this notion of a shared cultural linguistic past, whose recollection is a condition for Arab Jewish solidarity, was literally expressed by Mahmoud Abbas when he met with Mizrahi delegates, of which Shochat formed a part, in Toledo in 1989. He said, while the Ashkenazi establishment in Israel refuses to negotiate with the PLO, it is important to negotiate with Mizrahi, who represent the majority in Israel, I'm quoting. Because the Nizachim are a majority in Israel, matters of peace will depend on them. They are an organic part of our culture, of our Arab-Muslim society, a part of our history and our memory. We must renew our memory and use our common culture in order to overcome our present and plan for the future. Such statements are not limited to Abbas. They are shared by liberals both in the US and Israel. 
And indeed, this very notion of Mizrahi culture as a potential bridge between Jews and Arabs is a recurrent temptation. At first blush, such an appeal to a common culture seems appealing. A second look might reveal a surprising implication. First, we should seriously ask, why do we need to suppose an affinity and similarity as conditions for peace? Do we really need to be similar to have an interest in a shared life? Aren't we constantly encouraged to recognize and respect others even though they are different, or to put it differently? Should we be able to imagine a shared life that can go beyond this or that cultural difference? Second, the term Arab Jew makes a fundamental assumption of assuming that violence is an outcome of difference. While the history of the human in general shows us not only that different people can make peace irrespective of their differences, but also more importantly, that cultural and linguistic affinity right, is never a condition for peace. And the history of civil wars will attest to this quite easily. Didn't the French share a cultural linguistic affinity on the eve of the French Revolution? Didn't the Americans on the eve of theirs? And you can continue, right? Didn't the Muslims share a cultural linguistic affinity in Arabia on the eve of the breakup of Shia and Sunni Islam? Didn't the Egyptian people share a cultural linguistic affinity on the eve of their civil war at Tahrir Square? All these people, and surely many others, know full well that cultural linguistic affinity is rarely enough, nor is it necessary for cohabitation for the simple reason that a shared culture does not make you equal, or to be more explicit, it cannot be a substitute for politics. And this is precisely what I believe is presupposed by the Arab Jew and Abbas' statement, that Zionist politics is some kind of a lay supplement to culture, a culture that is conceived as a natural, somewhat uncritical run, whose history, as we are told, lasts for the millennium. If you share an Arab culture, the argument goes, then you obviously must have the same politics as the Arabs. The presumed commonality of Arab Jews with Arabs is based on the primary exclusion of political distance. Let me conclude this paper by commenting on the use of the Arab Jew in the present and explain why, as I said, it presupposes late capitalism as its ultimate ground. If you recall, the conception of Arab Jews is soaked in psychoanalytic concepts, such as repression, erasure, denial, trauma, and sex. Such a discourse displaces historical social political conditions into universal psychological ones and promotes such psychological solutions as avowal i.e. the acknowledgement of the repressed context and consequent healing. We should pose over this choice of terminology and ask why an approach grounded on the specificity of historical cultural difference and a critique of the West finds recourse in one of the most universal ahistorical and Western sciences of psychoanalysis. If we still want to use psychoanalytic terms, then it will be important to distinguish between repression and foreclosure, a distinction first developed by Freud and then by Lacan, Plutter, and Gilles. The first designates a repressed content like this or that unsanctioned desire that can be very well integrated into the psyche, while the latter designates a preliminary exclusion that sets up the limits of the very field of symbolic play. Every symbolic field or game is constituted, Zizek will say, and others, by a constitutive exclusion, a definition that brings foreclosure close to the concept of the Latinian brief. By making use of repression and erasure of Arab culture and history, scholars working with the term Arab Jew deploy the first term, i.e. repression and assume that what is needed is a process of social avowal and recognition that will reintegrate the excluded content. Such a process is well underway in Israel today in the last, in, in the last 30 years, where little by little the state allows the integration of Mizrahi and Sephardic content into school curricula and university syllabi, while the market, especially cultural production, embraces Mizrahi culture, which is today one of the most profitable mass markets in Israel. We also see the show uh, the rise of the Zahra middle class, a demand that its culture be represented in state institutions and popular culture. And yet, at the same time, we notice a robust renewal of what is called educational tracking, 
of Mizrahi children into technical schools, which will effectively seal their fate as poor and uneducated masses. The Arab Jew has not real answer to this bifurcation of fate. It cannot really explain why, why while there is a steady, albeit painful, process of avowal on one front, there is a steady process of degradation on the other. Going back to the distinction between repression and foreclosure, we can see now that while the Arab Jewish content can be reintegrated into Israeli culture, there is some other, more fundamental social exclusion that forbids the successful project of equality that the Arab Jew rarely addresses. This other exclusion concerns not simply the category of class which the Arab Jew displaces, but the entire capitalist social relations of Israel which the political claims that the Arab Jew presupposes. The cardinal displacement of the Arab Jew affects concern of the location of Mizrahim or Arab Jews in Israel's social formation. Let us return briefly to Marx's early understanding of the working class situated in his critique Hegel's doctrine of the state. I, I, I quote, the class of immediate labor does not so much constitute a class of civil society as provides the ground on which the circle of civil society move and have their being, end quote. However, the Arab Jew displaces the Mizrahi from its position as ground and conceives of it as a cultural identity on par with other identities. If as class we find asymmetry and constitutive inequality between the Mizrahi and civil society, then as cultural identity the Mizrahi is posited as a member of a liberal civil society whose defining property is not equality, but formal equivalence. Since equality is foreclosed and constitutive inequality is presupposed, the only kind of political claim the Arab Jew can make are always already conditioned by the liberal discourse of civil equivalence. The melancholic, I'll skip on that, right? Again, we noted that for its critique of the West, the Arab Jew relies on the universal forms of the West, i.e. liberalism, and presupposes them when advancing a political finish. I deeply sympathize with the attempt to think differently about the Israeli and Palestinian conflict that will challenge Zionist conceptions of Jewish life and Jewish history, but I'm somewhat concerned with the theoretical and political price we have to pay for adopting the term. Thank you. It's really a pleasure for me to speak about uh, Keller's book. I know he revealed it about what was it, three years ago. I was approached by Pluto Press to review the manuscript, and uh, I was one of them. So uh, I read the book, and then after I read the manuscript, now I got their book itself. And when I got the manuscript, I didn't have the pictures. Okay, so now there's the photos too. <laughs> and what I like most about this book is the fact that I can see Ella's mother, young. And when I saw this photo of Ella's mother, Jan, right, so wow, she looks exactly like Ella. So now, what is the problem for me in talking about this book? Um, it is a problem because uh, it is a little bit hard for me to relate to Ella, firstly, as a scholar. And that's what she is, right? But for me, it's, the two issues are more complicated because, uh, first of all, I have an interface with her that is it, it comes out of activism, okay? So there's the activist dimension that for me is in some respects equally important, if not more, when compared to the scholarship. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that uh, um, I can reveal without saying ages, Ella is four years older than me. Uh, so she's a little bit older, but it's very critical for years. Really good. 
but we are both 18 and 22. <laughs> so uh, the, 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 there is also another dimension, which in many, many respects, I mean, she's like an older sister for me, right? So, I mean, how can a younger brother you know, come and give speeches about his older sister, given the fact that she's, you know, I mean, much wiser, knows more. So this is a bit, that's why it is a little bit hard for me. This is why I decided that I'm just going to speak uh, 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 without notes, because I think it's better. So I want to uh, uh, say this book is important. Why? Because in many respects, it, it is a, 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 an x-ray of Mizrahi <coughs> social politics in the last 30 years. So if someone understands that there is, cannot be any progress in Palestine, Israel, without the Mizrahim, and there cannot be. So if someone is hoping for some progress in relation to Palestine, Israel, one needs to understand the Mizrahi foundation and the history of Mizrahi Jews. And if this is the aim of one, then he or she have no other option but to buy the book and read it. Because <laughs> if they don't do it, right, there's no way out of the catastrophe and the mess that we are. This is what I think. Now, um, let me tell you how I came to know of Ella Shohan. Ella Shohan, if I'm not mistaken, finished her PhD when she was 25 or 6, I can't remember. <coughs> Uh, very young. I started the university when I was 25. Okay, so it's a bit of a difference there. And then I was an undergraduate student in Jerusalem. And later on I found out that I grew up uh, 10 kilometers from where <coughs> she grew up. So we have a little bit of similar experiences. And then I was about to finish my BA. And then there was a Danish PhD student that came to do a dissertation uh, somewhere in Palestine, Israel. And she came to, and I tried to prepare some dinner. And she, by that time, I was quite a, you know, quite a good student. You know, I was told this morning I'm going to be the chair of Middle Eastern Department at Manchester. So I guess I was not that bad in academia. And I thought that I knew a lot. And she, the student, handed me a copy of Sfardim in Israel, Zionist from the standpoint of the Jewish victim. It was 1990, okay, so I guess two years there. And so I get the text, okay, interesting title. I say, oh, something I know a little bit about it. I told you, I didn't know, right? And I read the book, uh, the article, and this is very important to understand. And you mentioned it uh, for at least some people in the world, myself included, it's not all the world, right? but for some, a, a group of people out there. This was a flash. Okay? It's a flash. It's like, wow. It's, it's a, a just that you read, and it never happened to me before. Of course, not at the university. That I, I just, presumably, I'm just reading a bibliographic item. You know, took the bibliography, and there's a lot of books there. But you read a piece of work, and basically, in 30 pages, right, everything that I felt and sensed, right? Was written one, two, three, four, five, six, piece after piece, dissecting everything. You know, it's like a laser beam, and it was just this how powerful it was, right? And it is not that you know we didn't know of the issues. It, it, it was as if we were in the, in the plateau's cave, you know, we 
kind of use some stuff, but in a way, the writing of Ella, at least for me, I, I don't think the younger generation, a little bit younger than simply placed everything coherently and clearly. And it was just, this was the, 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 the flesh, yes, that emerged there. And now remember, this is 1990. This, of course, no Facebook, no email, no computer, as Ella says in her, uh, some of the, uh, some of the uh, uh, writings here uh, were written before there was a computer. So I also got my computer around the same time. So I just wanted to understand. I was a relatively conscious, by that time, non-Zionist Mizrahi Jew in Israel, at the university, quite a good student, right? And this was 1990, and I did not know that Toledo is taking place. <coughs> the Toledo was a meeting between Palestinians and Mizrahi Jews in the uh, 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 city of uh, Toledo with Mahmoud Darwish and uh, very important people, right? Back then, this is a, uh, now we are here later, I did not even know that this gathering took place. Okay? How would I know? Where am I going to read about it? In the newspaper? I mean, there is no access to knowledge, right? Like everything is fragmented. Uh, so you don't know what is going on. And back then, at least uh, when I think critical Mizrahi writing began to emerge, right, you had to somehow gather all kinds of individuals that write critically about the history of Zionism and also of Arabs and, and, and just get and try to assemble right, these pieces of information and also formulate them in, a, in, a, in an argumentative manner that is structured rather than just, you know, mere opinions and stuff like that. This is what Ella did. She laid the foundation. Right? You cannot have a living story building without a foundation. So every other people, I mean, including people here, added first or second or third or another room here, another renovation. But the foundation of the building right, was laid by Ella. And it's very proud for Mizrahi Jews, the fact that it was led by a Mizrahi woman. Right? And, uh, 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 and the other thing is that you need in this, in this space where you have scholars and activists mingling together, this is a space that can be also a bit risky. And I'll tell you why. I mean, at the university, a PhD student, what do we tell you? The logic of academia is the logic of originality. You need to be unique. You need to invent something new. You need to distinguish yourself from others. Right? You need to be completely you need to disagree with everybody in order to succeed, right? So that's academia, because if you are otherwise plagiarism and turn it in, you know, so you need to be original. But when you move to activism, the logic of activism is precisely the opposite. You cannot succeed if you don't join forces, if you don't cooperate, if you don't bring people together, if you don't have a a critical mass of people working together because that's a prerequisite for success. And when you take scholars and put them in activism, right, sometimes the logic of academia, right, enters the logic of activism and it sometimes leads to fragmentation, uh, struggles of egos, etc. And here, I mean, 
for me, as someone who did, and I hope that I'm also a scholar, right? Sometimes that scholarship and activism, the main issue was that at least Ella gave people like me an example how at the final analysis you can reconcile these two domains that I think are underlined by two different and even contrasting logic. And this is by allowing younger voices to be heard. Right. By opening doors, by sitting and, and, and teaching. I mean, uh, uh, the fact that I had also to read, for example, Ella's piece in English it was very complicated. I mean, uh, I'm, uh, I don't know what's the story with Ella. I'm the first person in my very extended family to enter university. So I was the first one that, you know, just went to university and in my English family was still. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> there was no existence and to suddenly try to struggle and read about the history of myself and my parents and my parents in English, right, in such a critical way, right, was also a, something that was very new. I mean, something that uh, were, uh, it, it was almost impossible to do it in Hebrew. That's how how uh, how alienated in a way we we became or were made to be in relation to our own history. I think it took uh, I think the version of uh, uh, the 1988 article uh, came in Hebrew only 1998, right? And this was a a version that was. You know, like a bit uh, quick. Then in 2001, you couldn't find uh, a Hebrew, a proper Hebrew uh, version of the 1988 piece. In Arabic, it appeared before. It, it, it predated. So this was the order English, Arabic, Hebrew, and this is a span of 13 years. So uh, this is hard. And of course, other people, like uh, people that were trying to somehow. Uh, uh, to join also the languages in a way, to make uh, a community that is international, right, that can uh, become one and to try to coordinate some scholarship and activism together. So I think that uh, a lot of parts of this history are in this book. And for me, you know, is, is not, it's also very personal. But I truly think, and this I close by that, that listen, for better or worse, there's no way out of uh, the Palestinian question without Israeli Jews that nowadays even comprise 50% of the popu Jewish population of Israel, about 50% even today. So even if people, you know, even if there are people in this room that still think that Israeli Jews are by nature, right-wing and uh, hate Arabs, and there are people who think so even today, right? Even for these people, it is very important to understand the critically, right, the history of Arab Jews and then Mizrahi Jews, because this is a, it's a must for anyone who hopes for a better Palestine-Israel, in particular, and probably the Middle East too. Thank you very much. Well, thank you very much. I'm really delighted and honored to be uh, and uh, to uh, comment and reflect on Ella Shahat's work. I've been a student uh, of her work for two decades now. And so I would like to speak about my personal uh, uh, relationship to uh, uh, Ella's work. And then uh, I would like to reflect on the methodology that I feel is very valuable for us uh, in the book that I 
keep using in my own work. So um, in the late 1990s, when I was an undergraduate student in Halifax in Canada, uh, to where I moved from Egypt in 1995, at that time, the late 1990s, the years leading to the 2003 second U.S. Uh, war on, uh, on Iraq, witnessed many grassroots movements around the world against the sanctions that target Iraqis. Activism against the sanctions for most of us were inseparable from the colonial policies that have shaped much of the region's history in the last hundred and, and so years. Back in Canada, activism against the Iraq sanctions became intertwined with the uh, American unconditional support of the Israeli occupation of Palestinian lands, but in particular policies of house demolitions, uh, which was the focus of the group I was part of, Canadians, Arabs, and Jews for a Just Peace. That grassroots mo justice-oriented movement was the first time that I, coming from the Arab world, encountered and worked with fellow Jews, a precious encounter that proved wrong every stereotype I was indoctrinated with about my Jewish brothers and sisters. I went to uh, Egyptian school in the mid-1980s uh, in the aftermath of the Camp David Accords between Egypt and Israel. I came to the realization of what this meant only in Canada during the Second Intifada of uh, 2001, when I came to the realization that Egyptian schooling and media, and this is true about uh, other Arab uh, contexts, uh, were trying to normalize the Camp David uh, Treaty in people's mind, which for me, now I'm thinking, when I'm thinking about it retrospectively, embodied both anti-Palestinian uh, bias in addition to anti-Jewish racism. Anti-Palestinianness to justify the Camp David Accords and anti-Jewishness to appear pro-Palestinian, both in a very racist way. So it was really within this context that I was introduced to Ella Shohat's work. My first encounter was uh, with her short very powerful essay, Reflections of an Arab Jew, uh, of 1992, which uh, from its very title challenged many assumptions that many of us in the Arab world held about the inherent enmity between Arabs and Jews and the singularity of Jewishness that is equated with European Zionism to the extent that I lived uh, a two-minute walk from a synagogue in the neighborhood of, uh, of Heliopolis in Cairo and I used to pass by it every single day walking from our house to my grandmother's house, and I never saw it. It was never salient. We had been a, under systematic amnesia that made us forget the actualities of both Arab and Jewish histories and adopted the colonial structural binaries that Ella uh, Shahat speaks a lot about it in terms of Eurocentric in the book about Arab-Jewish belonging to different, if not opposite, terrains. Additionally, it introduced us to the silenced, even obliterated history of Jewish presence in Arab histories, cultures, cities that looked, sounded, cooked, and sang just like, quote-unquote, us. The interesting thing about this short article is that it was circulating massively uh, through various email activist groups. I have received it tens of times and sent it hundreds more. I was sending it to Arabs uh, so as to see what we have been made to forget and miss in our own history and culture, and to non-Arabs to demonstrate that their knowledge of the region and of Arab histories was deeply Orientalist in a way that it forgot and made to forget the complex actualities of the histories of the region. 
I later came to know that the essay was circulating in the early 1990s upon its publication through regular post before email takes its, its own life. Finally, there was, for us and for many of us, there was a voice in the narrowing political uh, spectrum uh, at the time that continues to be uh, that brought us out of the abyss of, of binaries and challenged us to fight the battle for justice on many fronts instead of being one-sided on one side or the other. The essay presents a methodology that is apparent from the collection in this book where Shahat articulates an Arab-Jewish narrative that is launched on two terrains simultaneously, a critique of colonial histories as well as post-colonial nationalist movement. As the title of the book suggests, Shahad develops a new terminology to speak of Arab-Jewish experience in the context of the Palestinian displacement and draws solidarity between both populations where who were victims of the same colonial policies of divide and rule and Eurocentric worldview. Rather than building on identitarian policy, uh, politics or taking uh, the side of one group over the other, Shahad's method of critique tackles structures of power and systems of dominations. We see this clearly in the many chapters here, as well as in what I consider her masterpiece in the other book, uh, is Columbus, uh, Palestine, and the Arab Jew where she juxtaposes the cleansing of the Iberian Peninsula of its Jewish and Muslim populations to the, con to the conquest and genocide of Native Americans to Palestinian dispossession and the expulsion of Jews from uh, the Arab, wor Arab world. Such a method reconnects disjoint histories and maps trends in history that continue to shape our political present in the Middle East, but also, and more, more importantly, actually in Europe, uh, as well as diasporic spaces around the world. So I could not help but see uh, uh, Walter Benjamin uh, all around, uh, all around the, the, the book, particularly where he says that uh, what we see as a series of events, the angel of history sees uh, one single catastrophe which keeps piling wreckage upon wreckage. And that historian becomes the person who collects this wreckage, and this is what I see really happening uh, in the entire oeuvre of Ella Shahat. Shahat makes her starting point with, in the first sentence of the introduction to the book, uh, saying, while, quote, while the question of Palestine has been passionately debated over the past century, what could be called the question of the Arab Jew has only recently come into the spotlight. This is, of course, largely because of Shahat's own scholarship that spans for decades that the Arab Jew is a subject of analysis, as a subject of analysis was problematized and brought to the surface, uh, and as people, their experiences were accounted for. Then Shahat tells us that both questions, that of Palestine and the Arab Jew, are intimately entangled. I would say that Shahat's intellectual contribution in the book is summarized in this sentence that she reveals uh, to, the re to the readers her beginnings uh, as well as her intentions and method, yeah. playing on Said's uh, book title. Overall, the collection of essays that span over 30 years work uh, in opposition to the systematic amnesia that was imposed on both uh, Jewish and Arab histories. In challenging such imposed amnesia, Shahat calls what uh, employs what she calls relational network approach uh, that brings together multifaceted critique, critical historical inquiry that accounts for imperial history, 
partition remapping and post-colonial dislocations. Thus, the essays move us away from the binaries by exposing the complexity of affiliation and politics moving away from the singular uh, victimhood uh, focus of one group to a multifaceted relational one where the predicament of Palestinians is understood historically with that of Arab Jews, thus rendering Arab versus Jew binary obsolete. By constructing the bridge between the question of Palestine and of Arab Jews, Shahad evokes Edward Said 1979 book with the same title, The Question of Palestine, where he sees the aim of the book as articulating to readers uh, the larger Palestinian story and that he does in the context of destruction, displacement, and denial as Palestinians are victims of Zionism, an ideology and political project that acquired an unchallenged hegemony in liberal circles in uh, Europe and America, rendering victims of Zionism, be it Arabs or Jews, not only silenced, but even unthinkable that there could be victims for Zionism here. I'm, I'm invoking the work of uh, Michel Rolf-Triot on the unthinkability of the Haitian Revolution vis-à-vis uh, -vis the French Revolution. So it's in the midst of such civilizing project of Zionism and its triumphalism that Palestinian displacement and dispossession has been justified. Said thus challenges this in narrating the dark side of uh, Zionism from the standpoint of its victims the Arab-Palestinian. In 1988, uh, Shohat responds to Said by offering Zionism from the standpoint of its Jewish victims, where she advances Said's critique of Eurocentrism that rendered victims of a triumphalist ideology silenced by bringing in the Jewish victims of Zionism. In that, Shohat also criticizes Said, who speaks about Jews and Jewish history as a homogeneity, reminding Said of the internal Orientalism that is employed within groups that he mentions in, in Orientalism by the hegemonic segments uh, who uh, claim to speak on behalf of a collective. In that sense, Shahat uses Said's method in Orientalism to critique Said in the question of Palestine, uh, to dissect Ashkenazim and Sephardim relations. In, in, in a subsequent essay, Shahad demonstrates that the ways in which Mizrahim were invented as a category and racialized as a population by Israeli Orientalist discourse and state policies in their efforts to de-Arabize the displaced Jews from the Arab world as Zionism was also forging the Arab as an enemy akin to the perpetrators of the Holocaust. In this sense, Shahat's relational method of critique and history writing presenting identity that is in relation and not isolation in a way that is syncretic, complicated, multiple, and, uh, and ultimately against nationalism and group narcissism, uh, where one might deny the dark side within their own group. Thus, the critical method is, in fact, writing against nationalism and departs sharply from the uh, competing and comparing nationalism as, you know, which nationalism or which empire has been, you know, less racist or better than another, without favoring a triumphalist version of one group over another and thus challenges the moral superiority and exceptionalism as well as post-colonial order established uh, by nationalist movements in both sides, uh, the Arab and the Zionist. So in general, I find the collection of essays in this book 
counter the collective, countering the collective amnesia that both colonialism and Zionism, both Arab and Zionist, have indoctrinated the masses in order to forge a collective uh, belonging in some sort of an imagined community. And here, imagined community is not only the imagination of one's own group, but also the imagination and the construction of the enemy other. Just as history is written uh, and selected uh, to legitimize ideology and subjugation, critical and relational uh, history writing that we see in these essays uh, also act as critique to such ideology that uh, uh, precisely counter the hegemonic narrative, uh, hegemonic meta-narrative and imposed amnesia. Writing against nationalism is a position akin to the self-imposed exile of the intellectual that refuses to take sides and is critical of one's own group and community. It takes a lot of courage to bring out the barbaric chapters in one's own book of civilization. Critique is futuristic and has important political uh, vision for the future. Critique, after all, is future-oriented in a way that we critique as we imagine a different future, even and especially when we know that we are defending a lost cause. In this sense, Shuhats, uh, 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 if I may use Rothberg's term, multidirectional critique, counters the ways in which neighboring communities were made to see each other as enemies in the wake of European uh, colonial projects that invaded under euphemisms of modernity, rationality, civilization, and progress. Human history of the last century has been a history of displacement, forced migration, genocides, ethnic cleansing, and therefore also it's a history of the refugee, the homeless, and of diasporas. But weaving such histories together and uncovering the underlying forces that both displaced them and turned them into victims and enemies, Shahat's work speaks to such universal experience. It is important to conclude that network relations are thus important not only as a methodological approach for critical historical inquiry, but also an ethical and a political commitment of the author. Thank you. Well, I want to thank our panelists very much for having given such insightful reflections on the very different aspects of the essays that comprise on the Arab Jew, Palestine, and other displacements. But I'd like to leave the last word to Ella Shohat herself. Ella teaches at the Department's Art and Public Policy and Middle Eastern Islamic Studies at New York University. And I was so carried away on trying to sell this book to you when I first went to introduce you. And I mentioned the occasion when you signed it for me, which is when you were awarded the Palestine Book Award. And I think it's worth noting simply because it is something about the power of your scholarship and your ideas that they do so reach across the communities, not only of those who are on the panel with us here, but to a group of Palestinian readers who found your book to be the one they wanted to recognize as the best book of memoirs for the last year. And so I would like to invite you, Ella, to make a few reflections. I saw you took copious notes. Yeah. And, uh, and then I'll open the floor to our audience. So please, the floor is yours. Thank you very much. But we'll take all uh, geographies into account. And this is actually ultimately the point of how we want to deal with the question of dispersal, displacements, uh, and really uh, the notion of how place is, is defined uh, at different points of history. Uh, and uh, I think uh, for, I want to first thank you all 
uh, Jacqueline, uh, Haken, Moshe, and Fear for your wonderful uh, presentations, for the time and effort you took to delve uh, into my work in ways that I actually even forgotten. I mean, one can say about uh, author's amnesia as well, which is we sometimes forget what we write. We can read our own work or hear it through others and say, oh, I forgot about that part, and why did I write it? And you begin a kind of a self-reflexive uh, voyage, in a way, while hearing, uh, and the memories, and uh, even the very, um, uh, shall we use the word network here, or the, the different social circumstances in which one has written uh, or one wrote those, uh, those words. But that also brought a lot of memories uh, of actually different places because the book itself is written across many different places. So let me respond. I have so much to say about your wonderful presentation, so many uh, about the details, the care, the nuance in which your own way of thinking and engaging uh, with the text uh, resonated with me, but I, I will obviously won't be able to do justice to everything that you presented. But let me say a few words. Uh, first, let me begin with you, uh, with Jacqueline. Uh, thank you so much for this notion of adversarial scholarship and the way you frame the discussion around this issue, which of course is uh, uh, something that uh, we only have to be grateful various scholars who, you know, if one wants to say, uh, take a Gramscian approach to the subject and say, well, you know, the integrated intellectual, uh, how that intellectual really uh, correspond to an academician is, is, a, is a serious issue that uh, has been, uh, you know, Edward Said has addressed in his, uh, addressed in his work. Uh, I think in this context, uh, uh, how one brings, it, it was also, of course, uh, something that emerged out of a story of a life and one that begins to reflect on one's own life, but to do so in uh, via methods um, that one has studied, but also displaced them into another context. And I think that the word displacement here is crucial. So as you were speaking, happy that you recognize the impact of psychoanalytical method on, on this writing, because normally it is not something that is usually read in my work. I'm by no means of the imagination a psychoanalyst. I only can say that I kidnapped, perhaps hijacked, certain concepts uh, and placed them in relation to other methods, including uh, sometimes materialist readings. And so in some ways you can say that the, the methods of analysis of this history, culture, and identity uh, tries to offer a method that brings together the tools of various post-structuralist methods, um, psychoanalysis being one of them. Uh, and so therefore, the notion also of relationality, perhaps I, I wasn't sure that it is necessarily the genealogy in terms of how it appears in my text is necessarily psychoanalytical, even though it may overlap with psychoanalysis, but it surely uh, uh, comes out of the notion of, uh, with the post-structuralist methods of reading. Uh, it, it's, it is therefore, um, you know, also to evoke Fear's uh, work, it is touched by certain Marxist approaches, but it is by no means of the imagination uh, uh, Marxist approach. In fact, there is uh, it already in the first essay in the book, and in fact, something that I address in my first 
uh, book, uh, Israeli cinema, uh, that uh, actually I had an issue with the Marxist approach to begin with, uh, because there was work in the context of Israel, Thomas Gursky's uh, sociological Marxist work on the Mizrahi. And he was my friend, and we were activists together, but we, I always had arguments with him. This is going back to the early 80s. And the argument was that we cannot understand the Mizrahi or Arab Jewish question simply through a materialist Marxist approach, because then you are only looking through the prism of, of class, really. Where is the story of Zionism as a nationalist movement? Where is the story of colonialism? And that, in fact, becomes a crucial paradigm for me. And you know, you want to see uh, the impact also of Fanon and the dialogue with Fanon's work precisely methodologically, because uh, Fanon, uh, in many ways, uh, produced this kind of uh, dialogue that takes borrows from Marxism, borrows from psychoanalysis and then generating a kind of a critique of, uh, uh, of colonial discourse. Uh, in the context of the Venezuelan, uh, in the first essay in this book, Zionism from the standpoint, I, I actually posed the question, are we, if we are to simply take the Marxist method, it would be tantamount to using a Marxist analysis of the workers in the south, in the south of the US working on the plantation. Uh, and that would, the whole question of slavery, colonialism, disposition would be evaporated. So therefore, Marxism was never, for me, a sufficient uh, way of uh, dealing with, even though it was important. And you can say that certain sections of the book and the essays adhere to, to certain protocols. At the same time, psychoanalysis actually, and the impact of psychoanalysis actually became crucial in ways that uh, particularly um, are addressed in the, in the section of the first essay, which are uh, ordeals of civility, it's called. And in that section, I'm trying to understand what has happened to the psyche of the Arab Jew or the Mizrahi in the context of, of Zionism. And the key elements of internalization, which of course is a political term, were not used. Usually the Mizrahi subject was talked about in economic terms. And I think the shift here was really, and, and I'm grateful to, to Jacqueline for actually emphasizing this point, because you can see even in the more kind of uh, critique of power that it was important for me to, to place Zionism on the couch, but perhaps because I'm not a psychoanalyst and would not feel actually secure even in dealing with that, but perhaps uh, paradoxically, I felt free to, to, to use that term that I was placing. And, and indeed, in some of the parts, I'm looking into the ways the, you can call it the Ashkenazi unconscious, and its own complexities and pathologies vis-a-vis -vis the anti-Semite, ends up carrying over to the context of the Middle East, one, in relation to the Palestinian. So to understand the East-West question was always important for me not simply in the materialist, colonialist way, but rather as a mode of uh, uh, psychic empowerment vis-a-vis -vis the oppressive uh, West in terms of the anti-Semitic context, but then one that was displaced, and, and you can say in a perverse way, and uh, applied in the context of the region, one first toward the, the Arabs in general, as seen as inferior people, in a way that built up the, one can say, the 
you know, the Western Jewish um, ego. Forgive my brutal psychoanalytical language, but uh, that's really where I was trying to, and why I felt that Marxism, Marxist approach was useful, was had its own uh, limitations. Also, it would, would not allow us to critique the project of nationalism, uh, and also uh, uh, really the master, the schizophrenic master narrative. I was in the first work. And I was looking into Zionist cinema and Zionist culture as a kind of a schizophrenic narrative precisely because uh, Palestinian did write about Zionism as a colonial project. But for me, it was important to see the, to show the, the paradoxes and contradictions, hence the term borrowed again and displaced from the psychoanalytical context into the, uh, to the Zionist uh, idea as simultaneously embodying the Eurocentric project of modernity uh, and in that regard, also colonialist, but also at the same time uh, adhering to the protocols of the uh, nationalist, ethno-nationalist vision, and hence the, the generation, the, the engendering of various victims, uh, precisely because, uh, as we know, nationalism, and it came about in Hakim's uh, uh, talk, nationalism <coughs> often had its binarisms and enemies that it has created. And of course, group narcissism uh, that is so uh, crucial to the definition of self uh, and other. Uh, the question of trauma, therefore, was also important in this regard, and it came out in all your, uh, one way or another, uh, in your diverse uh, uh, comments. And again, this is, uh, well, I mean, I can already say kind of a self-confessional mode <laughs> that, uh, it was also a process, writing was actually my couch, my own couch. Uh, when I was writing in the 80s, the first effort to articulate what has happened to the Mizrahim, um, yeah, uh, it was really an attempt also to understand myself. And the distance from that place, the site of trauma, which was Israel, uh, and writing, Kishiko, you're speaking so vividly about the whole idea of reading in English, but also writing in English. I often speak about the fact that English as a third language afforded me a kind, not simply a distance, but a, a freedom out of the liberation. In one of the essays, uh, um, uh, remembering E Baghdad elsewhere, not remembering Baghdad, but remembering E Baghdad elsewhere, which is within Israel, where I was growing up within the Baghdadi Iraqi community, uh, that the question of English had many different dimensions. It carried, of course, colonial resonance uh, going back to uh, Baghdad and Iraq, and in that way, as a uh, critical of colonialism. I, uh, but at the same time, English also afforded a way out of the Arabic-Hebrew split with which I grew up, and that's why I dis uh, describing some mm -hmm. of the mem memoir piece. But those memoir pieces were actually written after I already wrote in the 80s uh, a kind of a critical uh, discussion of Zionist discourse. Uh, remember, I'm not a historian, but I am. Uh, I, I, I come from cultural studies, and that's important to remember. When I was writing in the 80s, there was no post-colonial studies. There was cultural studies, and there was uh, uh, within the field of what was called uh, at the time third world literature and film, uh, much of this critical work uh, was performed. 
cultural studies was an important tool as a post-Marxist, you know, we're not that far from Birmingham, post development in Birmingham, and not in Oxford, apology for that. <laughs> uh, but uh, the Birmingham School of Thought, Stuart Hall, were very crucial and influential uh, on my generation uh, in the 80s in terms of methods of analysis. However, the critique of colonialism comes out of different sources. Obviously, uh, there is the Arab world, there is uh, uh, um, Latin America, there, is, there are all those elements, and uh, that actually also come about later in the work with uh, some of the work that Robert Sam and I collaborated on, on thinking Eurocentrism, where we, we discusses the question of Eurocentrism as an epistemology. It's not about Europe, it's about ways of people thinking, and the way just feminist analysis talk about the unconscious uh, as an important, uh, as forming an important uh, way of looking into gender relations. So it's not simply about women's bodies, but it is about a gendered unconscious. So was, uh, we define Eurocentrism as a kind of the unconscious way in which in which the idea of Europe as as superior guides much of uh, scholarship work without even being aware that the writer may not be aware of that because the writer is not explicitly colonialist. The writer might be even sometimes anti-colonialist. In fact, in one essay where I discuss in in actually in the book The Memories, The Sports Voices, I have a longer analysis of Fanon where uh, it's less about the Middle East per se, uh, where I discuss that Fanon ends up becoming Eurocentric, not because, uh, because of uh, his, the, his the foremost anti-colonial thinking, but he's also shaped and formed under the uh, Enlightenment French school of thought. And so when he tries to tell a different kind of a history, a uh, different history, and when he, in fact, uh, uh, he, he thinks along the, the line in which enlightenment uh, is a product of Europe rather than as many also historians of the Arab, the impact, for example, of the Arab on, 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 on the Renaissance, for example, have shown an ongoing dialogue between the Arab world and Europe. But it is because this information is not available to him. Another question is, so he develops the notion of humanism, new humanism in relation to um, uh, European humanism. This is just to say an example that uh, the method in which one has to transcend, uh, uh, say, the materialism work was very crucial to me, but at the same time, I did not want to dismiss it and thought of it as an important aspect uh, for the work. Uh, um, yeah. In the context of Israel, uh, one can say here that um, indeed. Uh, the Arab Jew emerges really not in the early 90s. It's, it, it would be really, uh, uh, it becomes popularized really in late 90s, 2000. That's the really not even a, uh, yet popular as a, as a discussion. One can say that now it is a popular, popularized approach. Within academia, as Chico eloquently suggested, there was no place for this kind of critique uh, or writing. However, within Arab studies, as Harkin was saying, and that was actually fascinating, there was an opening. And it was not in within Arab studies per se, but Arab diasporic studies. So we see two moves in which the idea of cultural studies, the emergence of post-colonial studies, late 80s, early 90s, uh, allow this kind of work to be heard. But it was kind of 
It is received well, but it is isolated. Whereas the experts on, uh, on the history of Jews within Islam or the, culture, uh, the cultures of various Moroccan Jews, Iraqi Jews, etc., as it at the Ben Tzvi Institute, they are uh, fiercely, fiercely guarding against any critique of Zionism uh, that associates with colonialism. So you have uh, this kind of work got stuck, as it were, between two worlds. The world that methodologically was open to it, politically ready to hear it, say the, uh, the cultural studies, post-colonial studies, but not interested in this specific question. In Palestine, perhaps yes, but not in the Arab Jew. And then on the other hand, the expert and the specialist in this field that were uh, uh, even violently rejecting this kind of work. And I describe a little bit the violent reception of my work, which perhaps there is, uh, Jacqueline and I were talking about it before, a touch of misogyny in me as well. Some of the description, um, my work is described in relation to Edward Said. I only started a little bit. One day, perhaps, I will write just thoroughly about the reception. Um, uh, but the other element in it is how much, even in the context of the US, when I was writing the article uh, uh, that Hakim mentioned, Reflections of an Arab Jew, it was the first time I ever wrote in the first voice. I was very hesitant. Uh, I had a very ambivalent approach to, uh, or relation to the notion of writing with the pronoun I. Perhaps I was even embarrassed by the idea of writing with the pronoun I. And it was an invitation by a student of mine who at the time was working as a village voice, a liberal New York, left even by some consideration, uh, weekly. And she invited me as, as soon as the Gulf War, the, we're talking about the so-called first Gulf War, started. She knew my story and she wanted me to write about it. And I did write that essay. And it was about to go to print, but the editor of the weekly decided that it's not appropriate for the uh, week, for the paper, and decided to uh, stop the publication. It took time, but the essay ended up being published in emergences and in simultaneously in place, uh, emergences out of UCLA and movement research and alternative magazine. But why I'm really saying it is that I actually received, uh, because it was uh, an essay that was killed, as it were, yeah. I received a kill fee. Mm -hmm. And the kill fee, and I mentioned it here in the introduction, the kill fee stated type of payment, kill, and then uh, the subject of the essay, Arab Jew. It read, kill Arab Jews. Found it to be a fabulous uh, metaphor uh, for the whole project of writing about the Arab Jew in the frontier uh, of liberal discourse in New York, which had our time digesting that type of uh, uh, concept. And so the fact that we're here, uh, it reminded me of all these obstacles that you know, uh, I started writing about it in the, in, in the early 80s. So, you know, trying to address the question of the Mizrahim, etc. So, objectory that we are here in Oxford today, having a panel about this question, bringing together scholars of such amazing diversity to discuss the Arab Jew, is to me just an incredible moment that in itself uh, is a historical turn, which
which maybe we call it another turn, the turn of the Arab Jew. <laughs> <laughs> I'll end with that. Thank you.